like you'd open your Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which depicts life on God's terms. If Christianity is anything at all, it is living on Christ's terms or God's terms, living the way he shows us to live. We like to sing about the Word of God. We like to talk about it, but living it is what's required of us. Amen. Now, last week we started at verse 17 where Jesus was discussing the law. There are a lot of vague ideas about the law in New Testament times and that the law is not important anymore. It doesn't have much meaning in the New Testament and therefore you don't have to put much stock on the Old Testament and so forth. Jesus made it clear in verse 17. He said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That there are just and right requirements in the law as to how a man ought to live. And man realized that he couldn't live any of them. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll find that, if you're honest, admit it, that most people have broken them all at some point or time in your life. But if you've only broken one of them, you're a lawbreaker. And there are no provisions in the Ten Commandments for forgiveness. It's just a statement of what's right. It's what God wants. It's the way you're supposed to live. And when you don't live that way, you have in your conscience, in your heart, you've got the knowledge of wrong. It's called guilt. Guilt is a thing which declares that you're worthy of and do punishment. Guilt drives a lot of people to, to institutions and worse because they don't know how to get rid of this inward wrong inside of them. And yet when a man looks at the law, he realizes he's wrong. In the eyes of God, he's wrong. What God gave us in Romans 7 about the law, he said the law was holy. The law is, is, is pure and is holy. It's, it's God's word to us. And yet man realizes that he, he can't, he's not there. He can't live that way. And therefore, the Bible, as Galatians 3 talks about, to not live under the righteous dictates of God in the law is to be under a curse. The curse of the law is upon sin, upon sinners, upon wrongdoers. Christians like to settle themselves into a religious atmosphere or lifestyle, uh, that includes devotion and piety to God in some degree. I, I grew up like this. The idea that I go to church and therefore I must be okay, I'm better than others. Uh, look what I do that they don't do and therefore I kind of justify myself as I look at other people and think that I'm more right than they are. It never occurred to me that to read the Bible and see how right you are in the eyes of God. We just, as we'll look at tonight, we just see ourselves the way we like to see ourselves. And it really bothers us and it irritates a lot of Christians for the Word of God to be pointed out, to be taught that uh, you're not living the way you should live, that the Bible requires this of you and you haven't done it. And people do get offended by that. They call it legalism and that's harsh. But all you've done is point out that the Bible says this is the way walking in it. We have not chosen to live on such a level, but we have established our own level of living, which to us is, is good enough. 
And so we live that way. But when somebody shows us this way is not what God wants, we do get offended. We get us another preacher. We just don't like the idea that what we have chosen to do and to be is not exactly what God wants. And we'd like to think that such thing, like the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of uh, commentators would like to think that the Sermon on the Mount was for another age, for the millennium, say, or for some other time, that no mortal can live the Sermon on the Mount, that we're not capable of living like this. And so they resigned themselves to a different code, a different level of life, much like the Pharisees. Again, we'll get to that in just a moment. But back to this thing about Jesus and the law, his relation to it, what he did with regard to it. He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I'd like to read for you from a, uh, a comment by one man, Arthur Pink. He wrote this in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. I think this describes the whole thing better than anybody else I've heard deal with this, this verse. Pink says he had come with the express design of meeting its holy demands, that's the law, to offer to God what it justly required, to magnify it by, by rendering to it perfect obedience in thought, word, and deed. And so far from despising the prophets... His mission was to make good their predictions concerning him by performing the very work they announced he would do. And that's what he did. And if he had not done that, we would not have any reason to be here tonight. Any more than if he had not been raised from the dead, which verified that he was righteous. God would not raise an unrighteous man from the dead. But he raised Jesus from the dead, verifying that everything he said, everything he did was had God's approval and God's grace to it. And so we look at him and we realize that, that he alone, among all those who ever lived in this world, he was the only man born of a woman that lived perfectly, fully the dictates of the law. He never violated anything. He dedicated himself to that. He said, I am come to do thy will, O God. And because he did that, he became our Savior, our Redeemer, and so forth. Now, we said last week, would you look in Romans, go to the book of Romans. You know, if we didn't have the law, there would be no need for the book of Romans. The book of Romans wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense if we didn't have the law. That's why Jesus said, if you take away from the law, it'll be taken away from you. In fact, when you read Hebrews or Galatians, part of Ephesians, the book of Hebrews, Romans... When you read these, uh, these particular books and epistles, you realize that they all point back to the Old Testament. All the promises of God. Remember that in 2 Corinthians 1? All the promises of God are in Christ, yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God by us. The only promises that they can refer to are the ones that were made in the Old Testament. There wasn't any book in those days called the New Testament like we have today. That came many years later. So all they had was the Old Testament and the anointing on the apostles in those days was bringing out of the old what was fulfilled by Christ in the new. And they began to see it in a different way. Man didn't have a hopeless look at God's standard. Nobody could live this way. We're all doomed. 
They didn't look at that way anymore. They, there was hope now because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And, and through Christ, you can do it God's way. You can, the law is fulfilled in those who are obedient. It is kept by us because we're in Christ. Christ is in us and so forth. But in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 through 4, this is one of the most interesting books ever written in time simply because it goes back to tell us as Christians what we're going to talk about tonight in verse 20 of chapter 5. It tells us, maybe, I thought about this today, I measured this thought, and I think I, I, think I believe it like this. Of all the things in the Bible that is taught that a Christian ought to be really grounded in, it's probably this, who he is in Christ. More than anything else, I need to know this. That my righteousness is not based on anything I've ever done or anything I've ever belonged to or attempted. My righteousness is based in Jesus Christ who on my behalf fulfilled the law and has invited me to have a relationship with God on the basis of faith and not the law. I need to know that. I need to have that down in my heart to where I am secure and settled and at peace with, with God, knowing that I don't have to try to do something to make myself right with the Lord, because Jesus did that for me. I'm required to live responsibly, morally. I still have an obligation to live according to what he said. Because anybody can say, well, I believe God, I believe what the Bible says. James said the devil believes God. But the difference between the devil and, and the people of God are saints is living right. First John 3, 7 says, He that doeth righteousness is righteous. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. Now listen to this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Nobody ever lived in a human body in the likeness of flesh or in a fleshly body could ever keep the law. Christ in the fleshly body did. And therefore that was the death of the law as far as a way to be right with God. It didn't do away with it, the law as far as what we learn things from, but as a way of being right with God, it's no longer the standard. But it has much to say, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in what? In us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So it's a wonderful thing for me, I would think, for all of us to know such a, such a thing is true. That Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Romans 7 begins by telling us that, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Everybody born in this world needs to be saved. There is nobody who is born in the flesh in this world... Who, who is beyond the penalty and the power and the sentence of sin. And yet the only way you can measure what sin, what's the standard of sin, is disobedience. Isn't that right? How could Adam or Eve sin when there was no law? 
When there was, when God created all of that and put them in it, they couldn't see it. There was no law. There was nothing that would violate their conscience and bring guilt. Nothing. Until God said what? Thou shalt not eat of a particular tree. Because in the day you do, you will die. Now, was that fair? It sure was. And this was God's right way for man to live. Everything down here is good. You can't do anything wrong except one thing. The only thing you can do wrong is to eat of this tree, which I'm telling you, if you do, you transgress or you sin. And sin is the transgression of the law. It's like God saying, you just be faithful to do the things that you've been told. And so long as you do, there's nothing to divide us, separate us, get in our way as far as your relationship to God. And what did the devil do? The devil used the law to bring sin and bring dominion of darkness over men's lives. That's all he had to do was to tempt mankind created in the image of God, sent to this earth to rule on the behalf of God. That's Adam and Eve. And all he had to do was corrupt them. And he did with putting a question mark where God put a period. He's still doing it today and he's still as successful today as he was then because Christians still aren't sure. Hath God said, and then begin to use reason and logic and use socially sensible ideas to corrupt them spiritually. Well, why in the world would God make somebody something to eat and then all is good? Didn't he say it's all good? And why would then would you eat something which God said was good and then die? And then thoughts like this that turn a lot of people away from the Lord. What kind of God are you serving? Are you serving a God that would make you die because you partook of something that he made as good? And a lot of people start thinking that way. They get away from the word and their thinking begins to be wrong. See, when you think of God, you think of everything that's right. Everything he says is right. Everything he does is right. Every decree he has made is right. Every decision that God has made is right. God can only do right. And anything that is not in harmony with what God says, does, or wants, or has spoken, everything, even your best intentions, your very best, loftiest spiritual ideas are wrong. And that bothers people. But it was God who said, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. If you look in a concordance, what filthy rags mean, you go, yuck. That's the description God gives of man's attempt to earn his right standing with the Lord by doing things different than God said. Or things bypasses what God says to do other things that everybody applauds and approves. Oh, boy, look at this. And then we're right. No. That's all accepted. That's all is unclean thing. How could God be so harsh? God isn't harsh. The devil has warped man's thinking about God and man's role in this life and man's ways in this life. The devil wants to make each of us our own God, make us our own little gods, every man being a law unto himself. Have you heard that before? 
And look at what's said today. Who has a right to tell me what to do with my body? I mean, you all can't run. That's, you push that stuff down my throat. I have as much right. And here comes all of this little me stuff. But that's what the devil has done to a whole generation. Almost impossible to teach. Really hard to influence unless you use sin. And it's the age that we're in. This message was a lot easier to preach and teach 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago than it is today. Because today there's so much information that is going into so many heads that is different from what God said. Man is going about, as the Bible said, to establish his own righteousness. And he is terribly opposed to what you say if you don't agree with him. We'll just go to some other church and stuff like that. And so he said in Romans chapter 3, from verse 21 through 31, what a wonderful section of Scripture. But now the righteousness of God, that is rightness with God, right standing with God, right ways of God, the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, Unto all and upon all them that what? Believe. For there is no difference. That word believe, we'll probably get that after a while too. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace. Being made right and acceptable to Him. Not by what we've done, but freely by His favor upon us. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We have favor with God because of Jesus. You see that, don't you? We have access to God through Christ. Just whether it's prayer or come boldly to the throne of grace. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. He alone was acceptable to God with his life. And therefore was qualified to offer his life as a ransom for us. And through the offering of himself to us, he goes on to say, verse uh, 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now that funny sounding word propitiation is a word which also is translated mercy seat. If you're familiar with the instruments in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle in the wilderness and the one that, well, up to the very, they tore one up. I saw a copy of Herod's temple when I was in Israel, and they had a little, not a copy, but a reconstruction of it. Absolutely marvelous, beautiful thing. And the focal point in the tabernacle was in that little room, in that one little cubicle in the temple. You had the outer court, then you come into the tabernacle. You had the, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and then you had the candles. Then through the curtain, you went into the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies, there was one piece of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest went into that room once a year with the, on the Day of Atonement with the blood of the sacrifice. He carried it in there with hyssop. And uh, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat or on the lid of this table called the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't a great big table, but it was the most important piece of furniture ever made. On top of the table, there were two angels. 
that were carved and, and made two angels with their wings extended towards the center. And this was where God in a cloud would come down to meet with the high priest on the Day of Atonement. It must have been a, a really interesting thing. Now, nobody got to see this but the high priest, that God in the Shekinah glory would come down in that place accepting the sacrifice. But that lid, that place where God met man and where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled, was called the mercy seat. And in type, it represented to us Christ, between us and God, whose blood cleanses us from all of our sins. But he says that's only effective to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God tolerated a whole lot of sinful years and years and years through the law. The law was a schoolmaster. It taught us that we were sinners. We couldn't keep the law. The law was holy. We were weak. As he said, our flesh got in the way. But God gives us verses like this. Look down in the um, 31st verse. He said, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. The very fact that we heed what we've heard, that we follow Christ who fulfilled the law, means that we honor. We honor the law. We recognize the law as what it is. Like the Bible in basic English says this, Do we then through faith make void the law of no effect? In no way, but we make it clear that the law is important. Or another translation, the Williams translation says, Instead we confirm it. So however you want to talk about the law, however you want to see it, it was God's standard for what's right. God said, if you will live in this way, you will be in right standing with me. And man realized because of sin, because of the nature of sin in him. When Adam sinned, we died. Everybody after Adam died. All we like sheep have gone astray. There was none righteous. There wasn't even one. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how good our intentions were, no matter how much effort we put in, how much we gave, how much we sang, how much we went, jumped, flew, whatever we did, we could not make ourselves right with the Lord. But Jesus did. And when you are in Christ and you're walking in the Spirit with Him, the law is being fulfilled in you too because it was fulfilled in Him. The law is a standard. It's a, it's a high standard that God gave. Now, you can't live by it, so there's no sense trying to live by it today, though people would like to have little laws to live by. Like, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember that? Give me a set of rules and give me a, give me a one, two, and a three. Tell me what I have to do. Just tell me what I've got, just enough to make it. But that's not the way it works. The way you make it is by relating to Jesus Christ. He made it for you. And now that you relate to him, he becomes your Lord. Is that still in the Bible? Lord means, in this sense, controller. One who is in charge, like the jockey on the back of a horse. He just simply tells the horse the way to go, and he's in charge. And as long as the horse goes that way, he's useful and does things right. But this is what he said, and... and by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners in Romans 5. And by one man's righteousness, many were made 
righteous. One man's obedience, many were made righteous. So the Bible teaches us, as Jesus started out, as we said last, last week, I didn't come to do away with all of this. Because everything in here, in order for God to be where he should be with all of this, it has to be kept. You can't just come along and set the law aside and say, we're not ready for that. Give us something. You can't do that. The law was made. It has to be kept. God holds us all under the penalty of it. As I said a while ago, people that are born, you're born under the sentence of death. And the only sentence of death you can point to is the Old Testament law. It holds all men, whether you're a foreigner or you're a Jew, Gentile or Jew, all men are sinners, born in sin because of one thing. The Bible tells me so. And therefore, the sentence of death is passed from Adam and Eve upon through and to all men everywhere. We all need a Savior. We all need to be redeemed. That sweet little baby that comes into your family and all the things that go, that little baby needs to be redeemed. But a Redeemer has been given. And they need to be pointed to Christ. And one day when they see what He's done for them, they'll surrender their will and their life and their heart to God to be saved. Now, if you will go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew 5 and verse 20. For I say unto you, now referring to what we just said, referencing verses 17, 18, 19, and now 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, how serious is that? Seldom ever talked about when Christians are together, hardly ever mentioned as a standard, as something that is a priority. And yet Jesus said it more than once. This is why the Sermon on the Mount is a challenge. You can't get past this verse without considering what he said at the end of it. And you can't do what he said at the end of it if you don't know what the righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees were. If you only read that and go on, you can't do it. You don't know what you're doing. It has to be made clear to you. I need to see what he meant by Pharisees and Sadducees because Jesus said, Except my righteousness exceed that, I have any place in the kingdom of God. Now, if righteousness only means, and it means this, that when God brought you out of the miry clay and set you into his presence, when God accepted you, we talk about accepting God, accepting Christ, it works this way. When God accepts you, when you in mercy cry out to God because of God's influence, godly sorrow working on your life, when He draws you out of that miry clay and sets you before Him and you cry out for help, God, on the basis of your belief in Jesus who died for you and all that, He forgives you. You're forgiven. You are made right with the Lord. You haven't done anything right yet. You haven't lived anywhere. All you have done is ask God to forgive you. And when He forgives you and makes you His own, you're His. 
Now, not only are you his, but you are declared to be in right standing with God. Unless God accepts you, you cannot make yourself right with God. So the accepting is what God does. As far as I can see in the Bible, there's only one, one basis for God's acceptance of you. That's your faith in Jesus Christ. That he's the focus. Didn't Jesus say in John 9, 31 about the Old Testament? He said, ye search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He said, well, they are they which testify of me. I'm what the whole law was about. The law and the prophets. There is Isaiah There is Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, the law and the prophets, and there's Jesus, what they both pointed to. There is the focal point of it all. And then the revelation that comes to us, praise the Lord, from the New Testament, the New Covenant, it's a revelation of what was hidden in the old is now made clear in the new, and we begin to see what many of these guys were talking about. They probably didn't know what they were saying. Sometimes the prophets did inquire as to what what does this mean that I just spoke or that I just wrote. It was not for that time. It was for this time. Just like Nicodemus, Jesus said, you mean you're a teacher of the law and you don't know what the new birth is? And yet you go back and read the whole thing. You think, where in the Old Testament does it talk about being born again? Well, Ezekiel 11, he says, he says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a new heart and so on and so forth. This is only possible after Christ. This is a new creature. You can't do that to a sinner unless there is a basis for God to accept a sinner. I'll tell you what, God was very tolerant of, of us. All through our years before we got saved, God was very tolerant of us. Why he would save the likes of us and even more so why Jesus would die for people like myself. I don't know. But I am glad he did. I'll never forget that morning in Germany a few years ago. I was, I think it was the Easter season. Looking out the window that morning, I was about to speak and I was alone. And I could hear the, I guess just made it up in my mind, but I could hear the footsteps and the yelling and the hollering and look up this one little narrow street. It was like I could imagine a crowd of people hollering this noise, this level of noise. And here comes Jesus with this cross, carrying this cross, being spat upon and humiliated all kinds of horrible things said about him. He was an imposter. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. We, anybody that would say he was who he was ought to be like that. And they just mocked and scorned him. And I remember sitting there and tears began to come in my eyes. I'm not one to do much crying, but at least not in front of you. And uh, I remember I began to cry. And I began to just think how awful this must have been for like his mother to watch or his friends if they hid. They all forsook him. She didn't, but the rest of them did. And how it must have felt to see a human being treated like this. I remember with tears in my eyes, I said, Jesus, stay with it. 
I hate to see a man die. This is a horrible way to die, what you're about to face on the cross and all that's going to happen. I know what you meant now when you were in the garden. And you said, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. You knew this was coming and what it was going to be and how they took all your garments and you hang there in shame, the shame of the cross. And I remember saying, just do it, Lord, die. Because if you don't die, all of us have to die. And he did it. And I preached well that morning, as well as I could, but. But just the fact in my heart, knowing, knowing this, I know in whom I have believed. Not believing something for, not trying to get something, but I know who he is. I know what he did. I know why he did it. And I know that he chose me to partake of that victory so that I can live with him forever and ever and ever. I think that's one of the most vital pieces of information any Christian could ever have in this life. I don't care if you ever get healed, never get a need met, never get a prayer answered, if you know who you are in Christ. I once said, if I had to go to a missionary field the rest of my life, I, my main message would be Christ in you, the hope of glory. And preach for days and months about that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's only possible because Jesus sent him to do that. He was the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. A little lamb, an innocent lamb. On the day of on the Passover, they had to kill that lamb in front of the whole family. The kids wanted to make it a pet, and they killed a little thing, and it died and squirmed and wiggled until a life went out of it. And it was a type. It was a type of what Jesus did for the sorrow of it all, the pain of it all, and the joy of it all. Jesus said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. There, in Hebrews 7, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Us. Yeah. Remember what it was, the love with which he loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ loved us. In Romans 5 eight. while we were yet sinners, he loved us. Why? Because it was the will of God. And how do I know he loved me? I know what he did. I not only know what he did, but I know how gracious he was in calling me and maybe you out of darkness. I don't know about anybody else. I know about me. Out of darkness into his marvelous light so that I can stand here tonight, week after week, a third of my life. Man, working on a half. A few more years, a half of my life. Preaching the same old, same old. Every week. I don't know anything. I'm not smart enough to know anything else to do. I don't want to read your book on how to be smart either. I don't want that. I know how I got here. I know what, how this came to my heart. I know how he has blessed my marriage, my family. I know how he's blessed me, especially with, in this time of my life, with peace not not fretting or fearing any tomorrows. God's already in all my tomorrows. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil there either. Why? Because his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Why? Because he chose to. All of this is made available to those of us who will believe it. And then my two buddies, they go every morning, they're, they're waiting on me. Goodness and mercy shall follow me every all the days of my life. And 
I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember that? Forever. All goes back to this, what Jesus did. But, let's be honest about this, and I don't want to take the difficulty out of this. I don't want to add any to it. Except your righteousness exceed or excel that of the scribes and Pharisees. What does he say in verse 20? You shall in no case enter into the kingdom. Or as the New King James Version said, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, who were the scribes and the Pharisees first? Who were they? The scribe was, was an interpreter of the law. He was, it was an office that, that was held. Some of these scribes were also Pharisees. But they were the, probably the heady people, the ones you're supposed to know. And the Pharisees were a sect, a group. And uh, Jesus didn't have a lot of favor with these people. And these people had very little favor with him. One thing that Jesus in Scripture had very little respect for was religion, especially religion that abused people. You read that in the book of Revelation, you know, that the, uh, uh, God said he hated the works of the Nicolaitans. Nicolai, rulers over, and Laetans, uh, laity mean people, rulers over people, abusers of people. There are those religious groups and sects and ideas that do that. They rule people and they abuse people. The Pharisees were, were quite guilty of, of setting in to a little code. They supplemented the law with things that were beyond man's ability to do it. You read this in Matthew 23. In fact, we're going to go there in just a second. In Matthew 23, Jesus tells us a whole lot about the Pharisees. And he said that they were the people that made the law of no effect. We're going to go to Matthew 23, but look first of all in Matthew 15. And the Pharisees who had these little strict codes, and these little codes and these little traditions of the elders, they are, they are called, the unspoken law was called the tradition of the elders. And they put as much stock on the unspoken code because you could add to it. They weren't written down. They were passed on by word. And so these these Pharisees could take that and uh, reinterpret it or add things to it, and, th and they did. Nobody could prove them wrong because nobody else could read. You couldn't go down to the local Torah store and buy a Torah. You couldn't buy the law somewhere. You couldn't get your scroll. I'm going to go read my scroll in the park this Sunday. They, this way, I guess, did it this way. So there wasn't any such, such thing. So all the people could do is listen to what somebody who's supposed to know said. And boy, if, they'd had a, if they had had Bibles like in the Reformation period, and it started in the 1500s, they begin to, the common man was now able to read the Bible for himself and begin to realize that for centuries he had been duped. That a lot of things that the Catholic faith had put on the people was not things in the Bible. And that a lot of people had died because they hadn't followed these added, to, these additions to the Bible. And the people recoiled against them. They called them protesters. And we get Protestants today. Because that wasn't right. But boy, when the Bible was printed, it opened up all kinds of doors to freedom or at least understanding of the Scriptures. So in uh, Matthew 15, 
and verse 1, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your traditions? Jesus had no regard, no respect for their traditions. Verse 4, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. In other words, I can't help you out with money. I know, Mom and Dad, you got a little problem here. I wish I could help you, but what I have that I could help you with, I have offered it to God as Corban. So I can't use that. Now, God says no such thing was in the law, but it was in these traditions. So they didn't have to help anybody. They, didn't ha- they could say, well, I've dedicated to God. It's in a trust fund with God. So I can't help you. And so in verse 6, and it also says, And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. So you don't have to do it. Verse 6, God says, Thus you have made the commandment of God of none effect by your traditions. And what's the next two words in the next verse? You hypocrites. You play actors. You ungenuine, dishonest people. It'd be like saying today, Don't you know that God knows that what you're doing is wrong? They probably had a seared conscience where they they weren't bothered by this anymore. I think a lot of people in pulpits today have seared consciences. I do. I shouldn't be so hard on preachers. I've known a thousand of them. I am. I are one. But I, I have seen and heard in my life with people that I have known so much fabrication. Stuff that's really fabricated to make themselves appear. God hates this. You can say amen to that. Any kind of show in the flesh, any kind of fabrication to make yourself more admirable to people, more favorable, more accepted, more somebody, more of the great one, God hates that. You know, he said that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Beware when all men speak well of you. Remember that? Like they said about that spaghetti sauce, it's in there. Amen. It is in there. So he said three things here about the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. There's three things I want to point out. Number one, their righteousness was external. Their right ways was external. Now turn to Matthew chapter 23. And while you're in Matthew chapter 23, I'm going to just read for you. You won't even have to turn there. A portion in Luke's gospel in chapter 18, in verse 9. You remember the story of the publican and, and that beggar? Luke chapter 18, in verse uh, 9. And he made this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now this was spoken to men who saw themselves as righteous more so than other people. He said that two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other Tom Hamilton. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. This is 
the picture Jesus gives of self-righteousness, the show in the flesh, external righteousness. He said, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this Hamilton guy over here. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm sure people standing around would hear that and go, wow, what a big deal. Verse 13, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus said between these two people, one whose life was dedicated to, let's say, living the life, and here's one who had never lived it at all, but who recognized that he was nothing. The Pharisee thought they were something because of what they did. Their righteousness was what they did, and people could see it. Jesus said to this man, he, or to them, he said, I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified, made right, rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and everyone that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I wonder how many times, unconsciously, that ministers, perhaps, have exalted them themselves, noting their accomplishments, places they've been, how many thousands this and your building, how much you've done here and, and our advertisements for look at us and what about us and aren't we something? And I'm not saying that's true with everybody that's successful. I'm just saying that those things have happened enough that we can refer to it. And I can tell you that God does not approve of, of that. You see... John the Baptist said about Jesus, he must increase. We must decrease. There's no place on the throne for both of you. It's not a two-seater. The throne that is in your heart, the little throne that where he sits, you've got to get off of that throne. You surrender yourself into his lordship, and he takes that place in your life. And he becomes lord. That is, you respond. You're a servant. You follow. You do what he wants. Now, Matthew 23, if you go back to that now. Jesus, in pointing out the Pharisees, he said in verse 1 through 7, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7, beginning with verse 2. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Jesus said. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. Would you agree with me today that the only valid ministry is one that does what it says? Now, I know that's a big statement. And that's not easy to do because the Bible says a lot. If you're going to dig into it a lot, you've got a lot to do. And sometimes you have to repent. But God is... Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So living what Jesus said as a visible representative to a body of people, a ministry gift, 
whatever, wherever they are, whoever they are. Not everybody in the pulpit's a gift. Some people are trained to get in the pulpit, learn how to preach, and they preach. Some people are called to preach. Are you with me? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. After a while, it isn't. But when God calls you and sends you to preach, it doesn't always send what you want. They said about Paul, you know, Paul was little. They saw it, and, and his speech and his preaching are not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Remember Paul said that about himself? They think I'm just a, a hillbilly, I suppose. But he said the anointing is what makes the difference. It's not how good a speaker you are. It's not how smart you are. It's whether or not there is an anointing on what you're saying. Because you could take an anointed word which stumbles through this or stumbles through that, and God can make you hear what he wanted you to hear. Now, you may give the preacher credit for that, but he doesn't deserve it. Because when God speaks to you and deals with your heart and, and operates on you because of convictions you might have gotten, it's not the preacher that gets rewarded. It's God who used the preacher to do that. Are you with me? Remember what Paul said about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He said, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Who is Peter? We're nothing. We are hoses. And what good is a hose without a spigot? You all know what a spigot is? A hydrant, a water hydrant. What good is a hose? And when a hose is hooked up a hydrant, it does something very special. I don't care how beautiful the hose is or how much you paid for a good grade A rubber $55, 50-foot hose. It is nothing but something in the way unless you hook it up to a water faucet. And that's all we are. If you're hooked up to the water faucet, there's something to say. You're not hooked up all the time. People say, oh, you preacher, you all don't need, you all just get up there and start preaching. You don't, yeah. <laughs> I've done that a few times in my life too. And I think everybody knew it. <laughs> but when God anoints anything, whether you're witnessing to somebody on the streets, maybe anointing your time alone reading, are you with me? And the words jump off the page into your heart and you go, praise God. That's just, that's valid. You're ministered to. I don't know why we're getting off on that. We're supposed to be talking about righteousness here. But all of these things that God does like that is because you're inspired. But this life on the inside of you, you're inspired to know more about it. You're inspired to seek it more. I'm inspired to live it the way... I read it in the way he said it, and I don't want it watered down. I don't want somebody to make it easy. There's a terrible spirit in the world today, and you're going to hear probably more about it in days to come. It's called comfort and happiness. Make me comfortable and make me happy. Now, you don't make that obsolete, but I'm trying to make everybody miserable and make everybody mean. I've got them all mad tonight. You're not anointed to make people mad. When your whole message is about making people, listen to me about righteousness, when your whole slant is making people comfortable and happiness, it's because you want their favor and their approval on you. And when you seek that, you're no longer seeking God's kingdom. You're seeking your own. And you set yourself up as some kind of a little, a little God in a lot of people's lives, and they don't know what they would do without you. And yet our whole function is to point you to Christ, not to ourselves. 
You're not to believe anything because you heard it from me. You search the scriptures for yourself. So he said in, again in, in verse 4, after he said, They say and do not, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. For they themselves will not move, men with, uh, move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and the, the, the way their robe is put together and all the decorations and stuff. And they enlarge the borders of their garments. And they love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplace to be called of them, Rabbi, Rabbi. Verse 11, but he that will be great among you, let him be what? Be your servant. Give up all your aspirations of your attempt to be great and important and noble in the eyes of people. And have your goal to seek first the kingdom of God and His right ways. Ask nothing more. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not rules and regulations and programs. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's our testimony as lights in the dark world. I have found my peace with God. There's a smile on my face because I know in whom I have believed. And like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, I also, knowing that tribulation awaits us in this life, there is joy to be set before us that is worth looking forward to. Holding fast to what you believe. Because one day a faithful God will bring you through. And you'll be on the other side. While we're here, though, in this world, and while we're doing what we are doing, understand that the righteousness of the Pharisees, first of all, is threefold. First of all, they were external only. And secondly, about these Pharisees, their righteousness was partial. That is, they excluded some things and accepted other things, and they, they majored on certain things at the exclusion of other things. I remember a long time ago when I first started out in this, what I call the faith walk, or walking by faith. <laughs> a lot of water has gone under the bridge. I would like to think some maturity has come to pass. You see things a little clearer now than you did then. But I remember years ago, it was a big deal to, to be healed and to be out of debt and to have no insurance and not wear glasses and not do anything. You know, these are outward things. You can see this. And people tried very hard to meet all the criterion for what is right with God. And that's is negative. Everything was don't do this. Don't do, everything was thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. There were a lot of little policemen in the church in those days. You couldn't see their bad, but they were they had little cars with lights on them and they'd drive around and they you messed up. I saw you take an aspirin. Oh God, we need to pray for that one. They had all these self-righteous views. And they didn't realize, a lot of them didn't realize that they were difficult, harsh, bitter about a lot of things, didn't treat their wives and their family well, weren't good husbands, weren't good wives didn't always pay their bills or landlords wished somebody else lived there. Many of them were pastor's nightmares because you're always wrong doing anything. 
I could tell you a lot of stories about it. Don't need to. Some people would go to other churches carrying a little sack of tapes because they knew when they got to that church, they would do something different than the way you do it. So they would take these tapes and say, this is make you right. And that good attitude they had. Anytime you're willing to gossip and fight and judge and murmur and backbite, you can negate all that other stuff. I don't care if you don't wear hair on your head or glasses or anything. I don't care what you do. If there's other things in the Bible you live instead of just not going to doctors and not wearing glasses or whatever people do. I have found that when I got older, glasses aren't such a bad thing. They're really not such a curse after all. I don't like to wear them publicly. I do wear glasses when I study because actually I can see things better. I can. And I think, well, I think that's important to me. I've never had to wear them in a pulpit. I'm not saying someday I won't. I don't know. I used to criticize anybody that, that did when I was 30 because my vision was almost perfect then in my younger life. It still is good. But uh, every now and then it's challenging. And so it's like through the years you have learned that some things that you thought were so big a deal are not necessarily such a big deal as you thought they were. In fact, in Romans 14, in verse 5, it says, Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. Not everybody can just trust God for their healing right away. We should have that as a goal. Not everybody can just walk without fear of what will happen if I don't have insurance, house, car, whatever. you got to have it on your car. But hopefully as we grow, we can grow into that in our personal walk with Jesus. But more important than anything else is your relationship with Jesus, which is based on doing what he wants, the way he wants, getting out of his way and being in favor with him. And these scribes and Pharisees were, were forever seeking praise of men and being applauded. As Jesus said here, he called them some pretty bad names. Look in verse 23. It talks about being partial. He said, uh, Blessings to you, scribes and Pharisees. <laughs> he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Let me ask you all a question. What would they say to Jesus today if in a tape, if they recorded this sermon, how would he be viewed today by the Loveniks? <laughs> by the people who want only to talk about love and nothing else in the Bible. Like if you just love, you don't have to study, you don't have to pray, just love and that covers everything. Because they said that love covers a multitude of sins, so we don't need to do anything but just... Kumbaya and wait for the Lord to come. Well, what would they say about this sermon? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I wonder if any would recall back and say, oh, Jesus. Because if you've ever seen a so-called movie made about Jesus, he's always smiling and happy. <laughs> and when they got around the Pharisees and Sadducees, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He said, For you paid tithes of mint and anise and cumin. These were little seeds. They counted them. Notice, 
Here's where the partiality comes in. And have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You know, what did Felix, what did he do when Paul reasoned with him about judgment and mercy and faith? He began to shake. He said, Paul, another day, another day, not now, not now. And people still do that. I don't like that message. That makes me feel bad. I don't like to hear that kind of talk. I don't like to hear somebody teaching about, you got to leave us. That's just, that's just not what I think Jesus is about. Oh, you don't want to read the Sermon on the Mount then because you'll be, you'll be located. He said, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment or being fair and honest, mercy and faith. These ought you to have done and not leave the others undone. You blind guides. Jesus, that's pretty tough. You blind guides would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. I would say that was pretty tough. He told them one time in here, he said, you know, you traverse the world to make a proselyte. You work hard at bringing somebody out of your view of darkness into your view of what you got is light. And Jesus said, when you get through with him, indoctrinating him to live the way you live, he is twice the child of hell as you are. Let me tell you something. That would not sell tapes today. It would not be on the Christian station. Because this is harsh. You know what I'm saying is true. They would say that's just not necessary for him to talk like that. There's no reason for Jesus to talk to these men like that. I mean, how would they know any better, you know? And so there's this attempt today because if you don't speak and say what he gives you to say, and you begin to modify this thing and say it the way you want to say it, it's for reasons that are not favorable to God. You want people to like you. How many of you think the scribes and Pharisees thought a lot of Jesus? They killed him. They gnashed their teeth at him. Oh. They wanted him dead. You know why? Because his word located him. It still does it today. It locates me and you. Whether we're studying, listening to something, hearing something from somebody, we get located because that's the work of God. To reveal to you exactly how you are, why you said the things you said. You're just trying to get people to like you. You're just, you're just trying to think, get people to think you're really this or that. You're putting on a show. You're not even sincere. God knows the thoughts and the motivations and the intents of all of our hearts. You, I, all of us. And sometimes we go out of our way to be highly thought of among people. I don't mean we should try to make everybody hate us either. I mean, I, but we are Christians, and your, your life, your light in shining is going to offend a lot of people. Because I know what Jesus said. He even called Herod a fox. Can you imagine God in a human body speaking to any human being said, you go tell that fox. Now, was that necessary, Jesus? He could have used dog. You go tell that dog. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, woe unto you, you blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Was he right? He couldn't have been wrong. Because the third thing was about self-interest. Self-interest. You know, notice me, I'm pious, I'm holy, I'm where you should be. 
I would fellowship with some of you and maybe sit around and talk to you, but you know, you are so unspiritual. I'm just so far above it. I can't afford to get tainted. So if you read the Bible a couple times, I'll let you come in my office and talk to me. I'm like that. I'm glad you laugh a little bit. <laughs> no, sir, I am thankful to God that he saved a wretch like the song says, a wretch like me. What is the nature of the righteousness that Christ requires from us then? What does he require from us? If we're not to be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees, then what does he want from us? This, faithful obedience to God from an honest and a sincere heart. Faithful obedience from an honest and a sincere heart. That's based on two things. One is reverence for God or the fear of God. Remember Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, he said, The conclusion of the whole matter is this, Fear God and keep His commandments. The conclusion, whatever it's all about, is fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13. The last chapter in Ecclesiastes, next to last verse. The whole duty of man, us, sitting here tonight. The whole requirement from God to us is this. Keep His commandments and do what He said. That's the whole duty of man. Now, is there anybody that can't do that? Are there people who don't want it to be like that? Sure they are. And a lot of people in the last days, you know what's going to happen in the last days? I don't want to hear it. I want to be religious. I don't want to hear it. And so you have these, what's this? Why am I scratching my ear? Are you getting this? Itching ears? You seek out teachers for yourself having itching ears and your heart turns away from the truth. Let me say this. As I speak, this is beginning in mass on this earth. You can take it any way you want. Seducing spirits. I don't want to go into this because I've already talked to, today to a brother in another place about how this is happening with people you wouldn't think it happened with. But seducing spirits. Distorting spirits. Doctrines that Separate you from God. New ideas. Ooh, a new wave moving in. The Christian worldview. Oh, as Christians, we got this and that. Whoa. And all of these kind of new heady things we haven't really heard about. In the last days, I'm not saying that thing is wrong. I'm not saying it's right, this Christian worldview stuff that I hear about. But I knew, though, that in the last days there will be seducing spirits and doctrines of demons that will be the cause of people departing from the faith, not from religion, but from the faith. The Pharisees and the scribes were religious, but they weren't in what God wanted. So the nature of the righteousness that Christ requires from us is to, is to reverence God and to love God. Love is the greatest of all the things that you can have in your heart in relation to God. You can talk about faith. I talk about that more than anything. 
You can talk about faith till the cows come home, about all the possibilities and the might and the glory. But if your faith doesn't work by love, Galatians 5, 6 says, faith that works by love only is acceptable. In other words, I want to be faithful to God. I want to deal with God and receive from God because it's His will to bless me. It's God's will to heal my body. Thy will be done on earth as... Will you be well there? Well, then I want to be well now. Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. The Bible is full of promises. I believe the right reason to want these things is not for self-gain as much as it is to glorify the Lord. I quoted a verse a while ago about honoring the Lord and glorifying the Lord. For all the promises, remember that one? 2 Corinthians 1, 12. For all the promises are in Him. All the promises of God are in Him. That's Christ. Yes. And in Him, amen. None of them are no. They're all yes. And then he finishes the sentence by saying, unto, or so that God may be glorified by us. The promises are made to us. We're the ones who claim them, seek their fulfillment. God blesses us with these things. Praise God. And here we come at least in my life, after 40-plus years of this, it's not things that are important anymore. They're, they're there because that's a way you prove yourself to God. But God's most important. Just walking with Him, knowing Him, having peace with Him, knowing that whatever comes your way, God will give you a solution. Where Psalm 112 says, God will cause light to arise in darkness for the upright. He'll do that. As far as what I'm going to do, Psalm 32 eight says, I will instruct thee and keep thee in the way thou shalt go. I will guide thee with my eyes upon thee. What more do you want? Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Remember that? How do you know? Because I sang the song. A song doesn't mean a hill of beans. Any more than you can claim by your faith everything you want to. It only works when it operates by love. Though I have all faith to remove mountains and have not love, it profits me a bunch. Profits little. Nothing. People don't, don't realize this. I could talk about love the rest of the night. About the power of love in bringing you to Christ. The power of love in bringing Christ to you. The reason for the union and the power that comes out of the union is love, affection, earnest desire, joy of fellowshipping with. That's why he puts meaning on things. That's why faith is easy to work when you do it because of Jesus. Dear God, I want to be well because Jesus purchased that for me. I don't want to settle for something that you have delivered me from. I don't want to be broke and poor the rest of my life. I don't want to be rich and famous. I don't. You can keep your lottery ticket. I don't want the thing. God has blessed me where I am with what I got. Don't need more. I'm blessed as it is right now. And he's done that. Only God can put peace and joy in your heart and contentment. You know that? This Listen, all of this comes under this topic of 
the righteousness of God, your right standing with God, your right ways that are because of God lead you to the kind of life that represents what you'll be like in the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus made all of this possible for us. Turn to Psalm 37 and I'll try to close. Psalm 37. There are 12 references in this psalm to being upright or righteous or righteousness. 12 times in Psalms 37. You see it in verse 6. This is a wonderful psalm. Well, there are promises galore here. He said, verse 12, the wicked plotteth against the just. Verse 14, but at the end of it, he says, to such it be of upright manner of life or conversation. Verse 16, a little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. Verse 21, the wicked, uh-oh. That's what you put in a book when somebody borrows it from you. I know a preacher that had a stamp made that. He had just right here made on a stamp and he put them in all of his books. Somebody wanted to borrow a book, he stamped it. And this is what it said. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. <laughs> I'm sure some people looked at that and said, oh, you don't trust me. They didn't say nothing about trust. It just says the wicked don't pay back. That's all it said. That's all he said. In verse 25, he talks about, I have been young and now am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land. Verse 30, the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom. Verse 32, the wicked watcheth the righteous and seeketh to slay him. Verse 37, mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Verse 39, but the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. I don't know what people are looking for today when they go to church or when they get themselves in a bind. I don't know what it is that they're looking for to relieve themselves of all of this. But you could do worse than going to Psalm 37 and read it slow. Many promises in here for the righteous. And yet nobody in this room is righteous. You're not inherently righteous. You are reckoned to be righteous. God treats you, considers you to be righteous for one reason. Say it. Faith. And I'll say it for you. Because of your faith in God. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. And He gave us release from our sins, redemption. The ransom was paid. He became our propitiation. He was our substitute our substitutionary atonement. He did all of these things for us so God could make you His child and give you His kingdom. Father, in Jesus' name, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You for the peace and joy that comes from walking with Jesus. I ask you, Father, to deliver us from any form of wickedness in our lives, any sort of artificiality or hypocrisy. Give us clean hands and pure hearts. Give us honest hearts, Lord. Jesus said they're the ones that will bring forth fruit with an honest heart. Help us to be sincere in our walk with you. I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.